0: Welcome to the podcast of Grace Community Bible Church. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged, and inspired by this message. For other sermons or more information, visit us at gracebiblechurch.org.au. You know, one of the greatest miracles that God continues to do in this world in an ongoing way is how He saves sinful people and transforms them. I mean, it's as grand and as miraculous as what he did in the first six days of creation, where out of nothing, out of darkness, he created light. And in the same way of how sinful, hard hearted people, of how he transforms them and draws them to himself and how it's just a marvelous work of God. And all throughout Scripture, as we look at the lives of believers, that's the one thing that you see, that as as people, as sinful people, they are convicted of their sin and as they're drawn to God and as they see the mercy and grace that is available in Him. Both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, we see that, as they continue to live their lives, their lives are transformed and changed. And the the wonderful thing about the transformation is that they actually become transformed more and more to look like their Savior, Jesus Christ. Where sinful people who are so self-centered then become more and more selfless more concern for God and more concern for others. And really they begin to reflect the very character of Christ in this way. This morning as we look at Genesis 44, we will see something of God's transforming grace in Jacob's family. Of how that, of how guilty sinners, how they can be cleared of their sin and how they're transformed by the grace of God. In fact, in this chapter, we will also see something of a of a shadow, of an echo of what will God of what God will ultimately do in and through His Son in converting sinful people into the image of his son as well. Now in the past few chapters, we've been seeing that that Joseph has been testing his brothers. We saw in Genesis 42 how he had given them... Uh, grain but at the same time he had accused them of being spies and said if you're going to be truthful you need to bring that younger brother of yours that's there back in the land of Canaan and until that time Simeon's going to be here in the pit and then in 43 we saw some time had passed and then with great reluctance because of what Judah had said to his father Jacob Benjamin is released and they come once again to Egypt and they're summoned into the house of this great prince of Egypt, the second in command in all of Egypt. And while they think they're going to be condemned and and something bad is going to happen to them, what is shown to them is mercy upon mercy, very unexpected as far as they were concerned. And we saw at the end of that where the, the brothers were all together. And as we come to this chapter now in Genesis 44, Joseph will have his final test. Now I want to remind you why Joseph is testing them. Joseph is testing his brothers because he wants to see if his brothers have changed. Are they still self-centered men? Men who have no regard for God and men who have no regard for each other. Where they will just carry on their selfish interests like before. Like how they treated Joseph 20 years ago. Are they going to further cause trouble for their father? Are they going to mistreat Benjamin again? Are they going to continue to be a divided family? And we also saw in the last couple of weeks, as I've mentioned to you, the reason why Joseph is so concerned about this is because if he brings his family like this into Egypt, when they're divided and fighting and self-centered, they will not survive in Egypt. Because if they were to be self-centered and steal from someone or murder someone, they would immediately be put to death. But God in all this is working behind the scenes, bringing about circumstances and even working through the life of Joseph in what he's doing to bring this family together, to make them a unified people to reconcile them back to God and to each other so that finally he can preserve them in Egypt and make them into the nation of God that he intends them to become, the nation of Israel. And so finally in this chapter, we see Jacob, pardon me, Joseph wanting to test his brothers one last time to be sure of, to make sure his brothers have changed and they're coming together. And really it, it, it is a glimpse because God is working in and through Joseph of how God works about that transforming grace in the lives of every believer. And we get a picture of that as well. In this narrative, I've titled this morning sermon as God's Transforming Grace in Jacob's Family. And we're going to look at this section under two points. Firstly, we're going to look at the the guilty charge in verses 1 through 17. And secondly, we're going to look at the selfless plea in verses 18 through to 34. The guilty charge and the selfless plea, and we'll see how God's transforming work is beginning to take place in this family of Jacob. Verse 1. Then he commanded the steward of his house. He, referring to Joseph, commanded the steward of his house. And he said, fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. And put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. And they had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, up and follow after the men. And when you overtake them, say to them, why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. When he overtook them, he spoke to them these words words I just want to remind you again just from last week we saw that the brothers when they had come to Egypt a second time they were not knowing what would happen to them or to Egypt or or to Benjamin and though they were terrified because they were singled out and called into this Egyptian prince's house there was unexpected mercy They were treated well. Their animals were treated well. The money was returned and put in their sacks and they were allowed to keep it so much so that the steward says to them, it's God who has ultimately blessed you with this money. And he says, shalom and peace. And they got to eat from the table of this great Egyptian prince. And we even saw that despite Benjamin getting five times more food than any of the other brothers, the scene ended with the brothers feasting at the table, eating food and drinking wine, and they were merry, no fighting, no quarreling. It was a wonderful time. And while they were in this state, Joseph, behind the scenes, asked his steward to fill the brother's sacks with grain and to return the money that they had given. Again, this is really Joseph's abounding kindness to them as he had done the first time, where he returned the money and put it back in their sacks. But there's one thing that he does different this time. Joseph also tells his steward to put his special silver cup in Benjamin's sack so all this has happened now at the crack of dawn the men have woken up and they're sent on their way now I'm sure the the men were still merry from the night before and thrilled at what had come to pass I mean they were not accused of being spies anymore they're cleared of that There was only peace and merry that was shown to them all throughout. They were given more grain so that their families now wouldn't have to starve through the famine. Simeon was released from prison and Benjamin too is coming back along with them. So as far as they were concerned, it was a successful trip in every way possible. Now they didn't get very far from the city and... Jo- Joseph Stewart catches up with them. And as per Joseph's plan, he accuses them of stealing his master's cup. The very cup from which he drinks and practices divination is what the steward conveys to them. Now, one of the pagan practices was looking into the movement or the ripples of the liquid in, this, in a chalice cup. Sometimes even oil was mixed, and to see some of that movement, and somehow they could predict the future through that. So think looking at the crystal ball, except this is liquid and in a big chalice cup. These were some of the pagan practices of divination. Now I'm pretty sure Joseph didn't practice divination. Because as we've looked at the life of Joseph, he's someone who is solely committed to the Lord. And if you remember, he even told Pharaoh that it's not through divination or magic, but it is God who is able to reveal to anyone their future. Because the future is held in God's hand alone. It's not through some sort of black magic. So then, what's going on here? You know, I believe Joseph is going on with his this act of being this Egyptian prince. You know, where he's showing himself not as a worshiper of Yahweh, but but as someone who apparently is involved with the pagan practices of uh, of Egypt, just so that there wouldn't be any suspicion. Now, just as a side note, I I just want to tell you this, Joseph in testing his brothers is, is not a model for us to follow. You know, he, here's how you test your brothers and sisters and a- anyone else. You see, while his, Joseph's intention is good, there's certainly deception and some sort of lying involved here. So this is not something we're called to emulate. So in case you were thinking, you know, Joseph seems like a sinless guy. Here's proof. He's not a sinless guy. He's an imperfect man as well. But the emphasis is not in, in the ways that he's employing here. In any case, the emphasis here is that this silver cup belongs to the Egyptian prince and so therefore it is of great value and it's a sacred one at that. So even more valuable. And so that's why the steward says to them, why have you repaid evil for good? You know, for all the kindness and the goodness that's shown to you, why would you do such an evil of stealing this silver cup of my master, this this valuable cup? Why would you show such ingratitude? And look at how they respond, verse 7. They said to him, But why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks, we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then can we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die, and we, shall also, we also will be my Lord's servants. He said, let it be as you say, he who is found with it shall be my servant and the rest of you shall be innocent. I mean, the brothers are shocked at this point. I mean, this is the steward the day before said, shalom to you, God be with you, and everything was merry, and now he's coming and accusing them of something like this. And, and so they're shocked and they, they, they're trying to reason their innocence. And they say, listen, we, we brought the money that was found in our sacks. We brought it back to you the first time. Dishonest people, thieves would never do that. In fact, so confident were they... Where they about their innocence, they even say, if any one of us is found with the cup, then let the guilty person be put to death, and the rest of us are happy to become slaves of Egypt. But the steward responds by saying, Oh, the guilty person, no, the guilty person won't be put to death. He will simply become a slave, and the rest of you can be blameless. And so the steward now starts searching their sacks. Verse 11. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack. And he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. You know, you can imagine as the steward opened up the oldest brother's sack. Okay, here's Reuben. Reuben, open your sack. And he pretends as though he's thoroughly looking through the sack, and he finds nothing. Then he goes on to the next brother's sack, and he searches thoroughly, and he finds nothing. He keeps moving from brother to brother, from sack to sack. And I'm sure at this point, the brothers are feeling even more vindicated, thinking, someone else has stolen the cup. It's not us. But then the steward comes to the youngest brother, Benjamin, and lo and behold, he finds the cup, the silver cup in Benjamin's sack. The brothers are silent at this point. They don't say anything. But their actions speak louder than words. They they all tear their clothes. Now they're not tearing their clothes because they were not good clothes or cheap clothes or something like that. Or because they were feeling hot. Tearing clothes in those days, it was a way of expressing one's grief. You know, it was, a, it was a visual way of showing that their hearts were broken. Visually showing their pain of how devastated and broken they were. And so they would tear their clothes. You know, 22 years ago, when Joseph was taken away from the family, and the news reached their father, Jacob, Only Jacob tore his clothes in grief while the brothers stood callously in silence. Now with the thought of Benjamin being taken away, all of them tear their clothes in grief. I mean, these brothers, they could have said, well... You know, if they were the kind of brothers they were before, they could have said, well, too bad for Benjamin. You know, we we need to get back to our starving families. Grains in short supply at home right now. You know, this is the perfect opportunity for them to get rid of Benjamin, the favorite son of their father, like they did Joseph many years ago. I mean, they could simply tell their father at this point, well, Benjamin, he, he stole the prince's, uh, you know, valuable cup. There was nothing we could do. I mean, it's the perfect alibi to get rid of Benjamin if they really wanted to. They could have left Benjamin and gone, but they don't. Instead, they all tear their clothes in grief. And together they all return to Egypt. You know the brothers are already showing that they are no longer divided, each one for themselves. But they're coming together, that they're united. They're showing their love and their care for Benjamin by not abandoning him, but instead accompanying him back to Egypt. Now look at what happens, verse 14. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. And Joseph said to them, what deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? So they all come before Joseph and they fall down before him in total helplessness and Judah accuses them and essentially tells them listen I'm a powerful man in fact I can find everything about you including your deepest darkest secrets through divination there is no hiding from me you know and the interesting thing is the question that Joseph poses What is it that you have done? That same question has been asked again and again and again in the book of Genesis. To various people when they have sinned. Starting with Eve after she sinned and God said, What is it that you have done? and then with Cain, and then Abraham, and Isaac, and Jacob, and even Laban in between. In all those instances, some excuse or the other was given for their sin. But this time around, when Joseph asked the question to the brothers, Judah now steps in as the leader, as the one who's representing his brothers and speaks for them, and gives a very different answer. Notice verse 16, and Judah said, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Oh, how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servant. See, Judah, he's not making excuses here. He's not blaming someone else. He's not trying to defend himself. He says, there's nothing we can do to clear ourselves. And as Judah admits to their guilt, he says, it is God who has uncovered our guilt. Essentially implying, it's not you, the Egyptian prince with all your powers. It's ultimately God who has uncovered our guilt. I want to ask you, what, you know, what is this guilt that Judah is admitting to? I mean, they're innocent of stealing this cup. So he's clearly not saying that they're guilty of some crime they didn't commit, like stealing the cup then what is he admitting to? See, for many, many years, the brothers had tried to conceal the great sin they had committed against their brother Joseph. Selling him as a slave and totally abandoning him because of their hatred toward him. And they had concealed this for so many years years but in these two trips that they have made to Egypt God has been working in the hearts of these brothers and so that's why Judah is essentially saying God in his providence has been seeking after us he has been hounding us and he's brought us to a place now where we cannot escape or hide This didn't happen by random chance. It is God who has exposed our guilt, all of us, not just one person. And he's essentially saying God is the one who's bringing about the just punishment for our guilt because this is exactly what we deserve for what we did. You know, what Judah is acknowledging here on behalf of his brothers is that they cannot hide their sin from God. That ultimately, they stand guilty, not before the Egyptian prince, but before God himself. That's what he's acknowledging on behalf of his brothers. You know, this is a wonderful transformation we're beginning to see as they come face to face with a, Holy God. There's a sense in which it's like David's admission of guilt in Psalm 51, 3 and 4, where he says, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, meaning God, against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment toward me. So there's a change in which they're viewing themselves as they come before God. As they see their relationship before God. But you also see there's a change in their relationship with one another as well. Where they now all of them are ready to suffer for the sake of their brother and not abandon him. Notice at the end of verse 16 where they say, Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. Meaning they're saying, we're ready to be your slaves along with Benjamin. You know, this is a huge transformation that we're seeing here with regards to the brothers. It really is God's transforming grace in their lives, Because for men who are self-centered, womanizers, murderers, men who committed incest, it's only God who can bring about such a change. You know, one of the things that we see just from this section we've looked at is that nobody escapes God. No one can hide from God. You know, we sung this morning, all my ways are known to you. You know, it's it's a great comfort for the believer who recognizes, Lord, you know all my ways, you know my thoughts and my intentions and my everything. And yet you love me the same and you will lead me through this world. It is a great comfort knowing God knows his people through and through and still continues to love them and lead them. But for the unbeliever, it is a terrifying thought. Because yes, God sees you through and through. Your thoughts, your intentions, your desires, your actions, everything. There is not a single thing you can hide from God. You know, people in this world, often they will simply deny their sin and hide behind something or they will basically think, you know, I'm, I'm not that bad a person after all. I've done so many of these good deeds and those good deeds outweigh some of the sins that I've done. But I want you to think through, friend, if you're thinking that way this morning as you're listening to this message, Think of a person who runs into a shop and steals something, and the police catches him. And then this thief says, You know, 363 days I have gone to the shop and have not stolen all my good works. I've been living so well. Oh, it's just this one time that I've stolen. You think that thief is going to be set free? No. He is guilty. That won't stand in the court of law. How much more? It won't stand before a holy God. Your good works will never outweigh your guilt before God and your sin before God. Friend, let me tell you, Unless you recognize that you stand guilty before God. That you are a sinner before God and you stand condemned and you deserve only judgment from God. Saying I am only worthy of God's judgment. Unless you do that, there is no hope for you for mercy and grace. For those of us who are believers, I want you to just think of the time when you were convicted of your sin and you became Christian. When you saw your sin uncovered, how much of a great sinner you were. And then you turned to God saying, God, I deserve your judgment. And then you saw the mercy and grace that flowed down aboundingly through the Lord Jesus Christ and what he had done on the cross. And really, each day then for the believer is just recognizing that more and more, isn't it? Just even learning to not cover our sin, but daily saying, Lord, even today I've sinned. Not as an excuse for sin, but when we do sin, Lord, I'm not covering up my sin, I'm not minimizing it, I'm not doing any of that. I'm not trying to build fig leaves and sort of do that, but I come bare before you. You see me through and through. And then you run to the mercy and grace of God that is shown through His Son, Jesus Christ. Friend, if you are a, not a Christian this morning, I would ask you to think carefully of what this passage is saying and that you would rightly see yourself because of who God is and come before him recognizing your guilt Proverbs 28.13 says this whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy So Judah says, we're deserving of judgment, we're guilty. And so along with Benjamin, we'll all come to be slaves here. But Joseph doesn't accept what Judah says. Yes, he's seeing some changes with the brother, clearly. Clearly. But the question still remains, but will they really abandon Benjamin? And will they later, as a covenant family, even abandon each other if they come to Egypt? So he wants to be extra sure. So Joseph says in verse 17, but he said, Far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. So they're given one last chance here. Where you can walk away, be totally free, and abandon this brother of yours. Like they did many years ago with Joseph. Just concerned about themselves. That's the test that... Joseph is bringing about. That's what he's testing his brothers to see. And so what what is Judah going to say to that? And that brings us to our second point, the selfless plea. The selfless plea in verses 18 through to 34. Now this plea that Judah makes here It's a powerful plea and it's not a plea that he makes for himself, but it's a plea that he makes for Benjamin's freedom. And it's really the longest speech recorded in the book of Genesis and that is significant. You say, why? Because the very fact that it is so long, this single speech, the author wants to highlight and make sure that the readers of Genesis understand and take note of what is being said in this plea, a plea that highlights a selfless, sacrificial love for father and brother. Notice verse 18. Then Judah went up to him and said, "O oh my Lord, please, let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears." And let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. So Judah is fully submissive. He recognises the authority of this Egyptian prince. He doesn't know it's Jacob, uh, Joseph, as yet, and he recognises that his life and the life of his brothers are at the mercy of this prince. And then now he goes on to say, you know, I have no right to be in your presence, but please let me speak. And given Joseph doesn't forbid him. He continues now to recount how Benjamin came to be in Egypt in the first place, verse 19 onwards. He says, my Lord asked his servants, have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, we have a father, an old man and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead. And he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, bring him down to me that I may set my eyes on him. We said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. So first Judas says, Lord, it it was you who asked us to bring Benjamin in the first place. Benjamin, who is the youngest son, the son that our father loves so very much. Because the other son from the same mother is dead. And so, father loves this son now the most. And then he goes on to describe then what happened before their second trip to Egypt, really emphasizing his father's fear of losing Benjamin. Verse 24 onwards. When we came back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, go again, buy us a little food, we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore two sons. One left me. And I said, surely he has been torn to pieces. And I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs and evil to Sheol. So Joseph, as he's listening to this account that Judah is saying, he understands for the first time what has happened at his home. 20 years ago after he was sold as a slave Joseph understands the cruelty of his brothers even more not just that they sold him as a slave but that his father then was lied to in a very cruel manner and as a result how broken his father was because his father thought that Joseph was dead And so he's getting also a picture of now the state of his father. And why his father is now so clinging on to Benjamin right now. Judah now concludes his appeal. Verse 30. Now therefore, so in light of all that I've said. As, a, as soon as I come to your servant, my father and the boy is... An, an, As soon as I come to your servant my father and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servant will bring down the gray hairs of your servant our father with sorrow to shield I mean, this is astounding what Judah is saying. Because Judah is pleading for Benjamin's freedom. How? He says, because Benjamin is our father's favorite beloved son. So you must let him go. See, there's no hatred, no animosity here toward his father that Judah shows. There's no animosity toward his brother Benjamin either. Because his father loves Benjamin more. He has come to terms with it. This is how father is. That's, fa- that's father's favorite child. I've come to terms with it. Oh, this is such a different Judah, isn't it? From the guy who callously instigated to the rest of the brothers. Oh, let's sell off our brother Joseph to make some money. What a different Judah this is. And Judah, finally in conclusion says, verse 32 to 34, For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now therefore, therefore, Please, let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord. And let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find My father. I mean, this is even more staggering what Judah is saying. See, Judah didn't have to pledge himself as safety for Benjamin in case something happened for Benjamin. You know, but that is what he said to his father. But even if he did that, at this point, he could have hidden that fact from Joseph. He could have said, okay, yeah, we'll just all do it together. I I don't need to specifically mention that detail. But instead, Judah says, let Benjamin go and I will take his place. Judah is willing to sacrifice his life for the sake of his brother. Why? Because he loves his father. And he loves his brother. And he loves his father so much that he doesn't want to grieve his father anymore. I want you to think about this for a moment. His father Jacob loves his youngest brother Benjamin. Benjamin is father's favorite. And Judah is probably never going to be loved by his father the same way his father loves Benjamin. And yet, what Judah shows in this plea of his is a supernatural kind of love for both his father and his brother a love that is willing to trade place with his brother so that he can bear the punishment and let his brother go free. You know, there's no better way that Judah could have proved the genuineness of his love for his father and his brother and the fact that he's even repentant of all that he had done many years ago. This is one of the greatest examples of human love expressed in the Bible. It's a wonderful example of God's transforming grace in the life of a sinful person like Judah. In fact, this is the very first instance of a person willing to take the punishment for another human being and be their substitute. You know, a few chapters after, in Genesis 49, when Jacob blesses his sons, Jacob says to Judah, from you will come the kingly line. And ultimately, the, the, the Messiah, the ultimate king of kings, will come from the line of Judah. Do you know why? Because of what Judah does here in Genesis 44. See, because Judah representing his brothers comes out as the perfect example of a leader or a ruler or for that matter, a king. You know, according to the world, the people serve the king. But God's king is one who serves his people, is one who represents his people, is one who protects his people and will give his life for his people. And which is why, many, many years later, the lion of the tribe of Judah The Son of God comes down as a human being. The King of kings and the Lord of lords comes into this pitiful filth of a place that we have made a mess of because of our sin. And he looked at people like you and me and said, I will take your place. And I will bear your punishment so that you can go free. Brothers and sisters, Jesus came down into this world while we were yet sinners. He took our place and died on our behalf. The just for the unjust. The lawless, the, the lawful one for the lawless one. The guiltless one who died in the place of guilty sinners like us. That's the ultimate king. And Judah, in his Christ-like leadership and love, exemplified Christ in Genesis 44. Friend, of you here this morning, as I mentioned to you before, if you are honest with yourself and you're not hiding behind anything, not hiding behind your works, And you recognize that you stand guilty before God. And you deserve the just punishment of God. And you are coming to God. Let me tell you, God is also a merciful and gracious God. And look at what he has done through his son, Jesus Christ, on that cross. Where he paid the price for guilty people like you and me to be forgiven of our sins and to be made right with God and to be covered with his righteousness. If you'd like to know more about what it means to be a Christian or what it means to follow Jesus, please come and talk to me or Donnie or one of the members in our church and we'd love to talk to you further about Jesus. For those of us who are Christians, let me remind you, brothers and sisters, That when we, not only as something in the past, but daily, every day, we would learn not to cover our sins, not to bring in fig leaves and minimize our sin. Oh, when we see our sin, we would run straight to this ultimate king, the perfect king who died in our place and see the mercy and forgiveness that he offers And also that that would encourage us to know that he will, by his transforming grace, enable us to live for him and represent him on this earth. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the fact that you are a God who does not wink at sin. That you are a righteous God, a God who must judge sin. Because you would be unjust if you let sin go unpunished. Yet we also thank you for your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, who came into this world. The ultimate King who represented His people and who gave His life for for His enemies, really. And paid the price so that we could be His people. Lord, we pray that each day we would, we would see the, the wonder of what you have done in and through your Son, and we would live in each day in awe of that, and would cause us to hide behind the righteousness of Christ, not any works of ours or self-righteousness of ours, and we would be assured even more so to live for you by your transforming grace. Lord, do a work in our hearts, even as we've listened to your word this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.